1: Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
2: Welcome, everyone, to this Sunday edition of the Joan Hamburg Show. I'm very excited about my guest, television Seth Myers, whom I love and admire. He's coming on, and he is fabulous, and I can't wait to hear what he thinks about the Oscars, what happened. And then my old friend, one of the great talents in this country, the one and only Harvey Firestein. Harvey's going to come on, and no one is more entertaining. So the Joan Hamburg Show, straight ahead. Be there.
1: The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats.
2: We have two big holidays coming up, Passover and Easter. So let's take a look at Passover and food, and then next week we'll do Easter and give you some of our discoveries. Passover starts at sundown on Friday, April 15th, and it ends at sundown on April 23rd. This Jewish holiday commemorates the exodus of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And one of the traditions for many families is serving gefilte fish at the Passover Seder. And some people make it, and if you have a good fish store, they grind whitefish and pike and the whole thing together so you can poach it. And otherwise, you can buy it. And some of our favorite sources, it's like the best French canals We love it. If you've never tried it, call the Catered Words Alicia and see if you're in her delivery area or you can pick it up. She's a wonderful cook and caterer. She established her business in 1989 and it was the old word of mouth, a famous New York gourmet store in New York City. And she sells the fish with special horseradish and steamed carrots for $10 a piece and you can cut them in half. They're delicious. And Park East Butcher, a place that also has delicious fish, is Park East Butcher. And there at 1733 First Avenue between 89th and 90th, they have been in business for over 40 years and they sell a lot of Prepared foods and people line up to get them and if you're celebrating passover They have foods to cook and of course the ready-made their homemade gefilte fish is $18.99 a pound and they do kosher for passover complete dinners that serve 10 people Usually around 475 and that's fish and their soup is delicious too entrees you'd get a choice and you could have turkey, Cornish hand, brisket, pot roast, and steak. So that's good to know about. And the famous Second Avenue Deli on East 83rd Street or on First Avenue between Lexington, they have a lot of great places and they have a minimum on deliveries, but they have a Passover dinner for twelve people for five twenty five. And they have soup and appetizer, entree, desserts. They have a la carte seda plates. And it's really good to know about. And even if you don't get any of this, if you're in your market, like Stop & Shop, ShopRite, Fairway, they have A&B famous frozen gefilte fish. This is a loaf you cook at home. And it's really delicious. It tastes homemade, fresh whitefish egg whites, canola oil, onions, matzo meal, excellent. You cook the frozen loaf on top of the stove with carrots and onions for about an hour and a half in simmering water. Then you refrigerate and slice. $7.79, we saw it at ShopRite, and it's really good. And there's now a little Middle Eastern restaurant in Greenwich Village, on 11th Street and 6th Avenue it's called Kuba and here is their phone 646-448-6688 and they are offering a kosher style Passover Seder to go for $80 a person and they have a dinner box that has a lot of really delicious goodies matzo meal matzo ball soup, and horosis with dates and apple and almonds, sautéed vegetables, brisket or artichoke hearts, and great macaroons. It's fun to know about this place. 646-448-6688 or eat, dot hcom A little peek early at Passover, and next week we'll share you our Easter discoveries. I'm Joan Hamburg and more to come.
1: The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg, entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
2: I love talking to Seth Meyers. And, you know, he's an award-winning writer. He's a comedian, late night with Seth Meyers. He was out of school just a handful of years. So sort of eat your heart out when he landed a job for Saturday Night Live like how did that happen? But it happened and he never looked back. And now Seth has a best selling book called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared with wonderful illustrations. And it's the story of a bear, a great big bear, who is scared of almost everything. And his best friend, a little bunny, is scared of nothing. And this book. Explains to you how the scaredy cat rose to the occasion when he had to. So, congratulations, a best selling book. Were you scared when you were a kid?
0: I was scared. I was scared of a great many things. And I think I was very lucky to have parents who were the right kind of parents to raise a scared kid. They didn't necessarily tell me to just get over it. They were Good listeners, they help me work through my fears. Because I think ultimately with your kids, what I'm finding now is you can tell them all you want that something's not actually scary. Ultimately, they have to come to that decision on their own. So uh,
2: you just go on that journey with them. And scared as a kid is one thing. Scared as a grown-up. I mean, we have terrible things in the world that scare us. But it's also very scary being a comic. And trying to go out there and making people laugh. How did you deal with that? Did that phase you? Or you just felt you could go ahead and do it when you started?
0: When I was a young comedian, I mean that was the hardest part was just getting over that initial fear of of being able to walk out on stage in front of people. Back in I remember in high school I really wanted to do school plays, but I could not even bring myself to audition for them. I was just too terrified by it. And it wasn't until I found my way into college and and I saw an improv troupe and that made me think, "Oh, thinking fast on my feet might be a thing." that I could thrive at. And so that was my sort of gateway into being on stage just doing improv comedy and then very slowly working my way, obviously through the many hurdles after that. But yeah, stage fright, you know, I know it's a fear that a lot of people have. And and I think most performers had it at one point too. And I still get a little bit of anxiety before I go on stage. Um, And to some degree, I think anxiety is is a helpful companion at times because it, it helps you sort of focus in on the task at hand. And I think that's helpful.
2: But even as a writer, the big job that you got when you were only what five, six years out of college—yeah, Saturday Night Live—was that. Now that was probably collaborative, right? Was that a group activity at that time? No,
0: the way s l works is you sort of you can collaborate with maybe one or two other people, but. You're sort of on your own. They give you a computer in an office. And, you know, when you start, you share your office with a couple of people. I was lucky enough that our sense of the humor lined up, but other people weren't. And you just sit there and look at a blank piece of paper and think, what am I going to write this week for a show that I've watched since I was a kid? And I'm going to have it read by movie stars that I've known my whole life and, and hope that it goes well in front of the comedians i most respect in the world it was a daunting task and and you know i think having lived through that period of professional anxiety makes everything after that a little bit easier to bear because that was the scariest that ever was
2: but as a grown up with all of us with a lot of issues but how did you deal with the pandemic and did your kids think about it or were they too young
0: They were mercifully too young. I think they had their own challenges insofar as they were out of school, obviously, like everyone else's kids. But, you know, they were, when it started, four and two. So it wasn't a fear so much for them as it was for us. But the silver lining was we got to be together more than we would have been had I been doing the show in the studio. And so for basically a full year, I was doing the show out of the studio to some degree and getting to spend more time with my kids. So, it was a it was a trippy time. It was a creatively exhilarating time, you know, you do a show in a studio and the longer you do it in the sh- studio Um, there are things you just start taking for granted. And all of a sudden I was doing it in an attic and having to figure out how to do lights and sound and makeup and, and everything that I had just turned over to skilled professionals. (laughs) But it was, you know, the kind of challenge you don't expect to get that late in your career. And I came out the other side of it and I think the show's better. And I also think I appreciate the people I work with more than I ever have. And I think I appreciated them a lot beforehand but now more than ever,
2: you get it. And and it seems to me even watching it now, maybe this is just because of our times that the relationship with the audience changes a little. It does. Yeah. So tell me what that was like when you first came back and there were these adoring people, you know, loving you, laughing, clapping, making you feel like, Hey, this is me. I can do this.
0: Well, you know, the stripped down version of the show where you're alone in an attic and you're doing the show into an iPad and then you realize a lot of people are just watching the show on an iPad. And so by removing the studio audience, I felt closer to the audience than I ever had before. And so I was a little worried, to be honest, about going back into the studio and being in front of 180 audience members every night but it was really emotional the first night they came back because when i walked out i felt from them not just that they were an audience but that they were the audience that had been watching me at home and it wasn't that i'd been away from them physically i'd been away from them for 2 years but uh they'd been with me and i'd been with them and so that closeness has continued uh, as we as we started doing the show with with a more you know normal routine again
2: right i'm talking to seth myers and you see him i hope every night an emmy award-winning writer comedian late night with seth myers used to be the head writer on saturday night live a brand new children's book i'm not scared you're scared did your kids get upset because you thought they were scared or did they feel relief with the book
0: I don't know if they thought either, of those. They mostly were just really happy that they were mentioned in the dedications at the end. I think they're happiest to show their names in print to their friends. They were really helpful through the whole process Like, you know, with so much of why I wanted to write a children's book is because we read so many children's books. And I certainly didn't want to write the kind of book that my kids would put at the bottom of the pile. So the whole process before I even put pen to paper was telling them the story at night as a bedtime story first. And then it was so much fun to show them uh, the art as it came in from um, Rob Sag, Jr., our incredible illustrator. And they've been a part of the process the whole time. And, and they definitely feel I think they talk about the book as though they had also co-authored it. And I just want to make it very clear on the show, Joan, they did yes. not. I did all did the work not. they were just there. Okay. <laughs> they were, they were in the room, but all the good ideas came from me.
2: I certainly hope so. Seth Myers, <laughs> I'm not scared. You're scared. And when I read this really charming children's book, what a time. I mean, we have kids watching a war on television yeah. or seeing things. So I think about fear a lot because I feel scared. And I wonder how children do with it. What do you think? Is this having an impact on all these kids?
0: I think it is. I think it obviously matters what age they are because, you know, the older kids get, they control their flow of information, Mm -hmm. probably at a younger age than we were able to. But the biggest job for parents, it strikes me, is to try to leave your own anxiety at the door when you come home. Uh, because I think kids ultimately are going to learn fear from the adults they have in their lives. And so while it's important to make sure your kids aren't living in a bubble, you don't want them to know what's going on in the world. At the same time, you want to make space to just be a family and to not let outside stresses color how you're living your life with each other.
2: And being a writer and a comedian and all these things, the world has changed a lot. A Funny, it seems to me, has changed. And yet, I saw an old show that was brought back a revival that was a little tired. But I laughed throughout the entire show. And the person with me said, what was so funny? I said, All these familiar things, I don't care how tired, how stale they are, it was such a relief to laugh and be able to make fun of ourselves. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's nice. I mean, it it is um, a real credit to the comedy that's endured that it can still make you laugh.
2: Right. I still remember Buddy Hackett in... The early
0: days. You know what? It's so, uh, my YouTube algorithm always suggests old Johnny Carson clips to me because over the years I've just gone back and looked and uh, Buddy Hackett is so much fun to go back and watch Rodney Dangerfield and Carson. Oh my God, laugh out loud. Bob Euchre. It's just so much fun. It's so, it's also patient, which is also a really nice thing to look back on is how much air there was and how much they were enjoying each other and how the audience was waiting on their every word. It's it it brings me great comfort to watch those old clips.
2: It does. And we wanted a laugh, which is why watching the Oscars the other night, which were a little boring until um, Will Smith broke the boredom cycle. Yes, And right. I mean, that was the best part of the Oscars. I wouldn't he... <laughs> say
0: it was the best part of the Oscars. I would say it was the worst part of the Oscars, but it would, I would also argue, I would never argue that it wasn't boring. It was, it was certainly not boring, but it was not good.
2: It was so unexpected because as the audience removed in front of a TV screen, when that first happened, we didn't know, Should is this a funny bit? Are we going to yeah. laugh? I mean, I bet I
0: bet until the moment it happened, uh, Chris Rock felt the same way. (laughs) You know, it must have he must have been wondering if this was going to be a bit too.
2: But you know what? He did good because he just carried on ignoring the blip in a way and just went right on. And I thought that was pretty good.
0: I said to my writers, if I got slapped, we would cancel shows until July. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's right and you'd have shrinks up the kazoo coming yeah. <laughs> to explain what happened but uh, really a crazy time what's appropriate and what's not and is there an answer do you punish a guy for like a mental lapse they couldn't get him out apparently of the room
0: yes I mean I I, I think that uh, it was more than a mental lapse I don't quite know if there if a, a what the a punishment history. is, but I, uh-huh. yeah, I wouldn't write it off as just a mental lapse. There was a lot of, there were a lot of outs there in the, um, in the moment he he decided to get up in the moment he did the slap.
2: Right. And, and a lot of anger. And as, how do you really handle this? If you're a Chris Rock, was that the right thing to just step over it and go on?
0: I think uh, it's it's almost unfair to ask what was the right thing, because right, when you think about knows? how little time he had to think about it, um, I'm mostly just impressed that the speed in which he processed and recovered was uh, was just something to uh, something to observe.
2: Right. And wh- when you think of the earlier comedians that we were talking about, there was a place for what some people would consider offensive. It just seemed better humored. It didn't seem angry. It was, we just thought it was funny. But can we do that today? I don't don't know if that would work today.
0: I think we we can. I think there's a lot. I think comedy is actually uh, an incredibly robust, creative place right now. I think there are a lot of different voices in a way that there wasn't in the time we're talking about. You know, when we were talking about Johnny Carson, I do love those clips, but there was not um, a diversity of guests there that you see today. And so I think, yeah, it's great. We have new voices, new comedy voices. Comedy is a really great time, I actually think, to be a comedian. And I think that there's a little bit too much pearl clutching about what you can and can't say. Uh Um, You know, because I think that ultimately um, Chris Rock had every right to say that. And he wasn't the one that was at fault. I think we should all agree that people shouldn't get on stage and slap anyone
2: exactly
1: yeah
2: and so who knows what's going to happen but your job of satirizing the news on a daily basis practically has that gotten harder and harder or
0: um it, just hasn't. it it you know i Look, it's really cathartic to talk about the news for me. I think I'd be really depressed if I didn't have an outlet. And so I'm always thinking of it through the spectrum of how much worse it would be if I wasn't making jokes about it. And I'm hoping to provide that catharsis to the people that are listening as well. Um, Certainly there are days where you wish you had any other job. But more often than not, I'm thrilled and and feel very lucky and... and, uh, want to take advantage of it and want to do it to the best of my ability. And I'm lucky to be surrounded by the people that make that possible.
2: Right. I'm talking to Seth Meyers, a new book. I'm not scared. You're scared, but you do a lot, whether it's special lobby baby, which was when one of your kids was born in the lobby of your apartment building. Speaking of fear, and <laughs> you've, you've done all that. Do you ever as, I really thought about you when I watched this recent Broadway show. Do you ever think about doing that to add that to the ledger? A
0: Broadway show?
2: Yeah, to write a show. I think
0: there's nothing I would ever rule out. The only tricky thing for me as we continue to have children and the job of father becomes the most important in my life is finding the time for other projects, but they're all, they're all so exciting to me. And, you know, I'm so happy I found a time to write a children's book. I'm so happy. I found the time to go do a stand up special, but, you know, moving forward, the show takes a lot of my focus and obviously a lot of my time. And, and I want to make sure there's also ample, ample uh, time on the calendar to, to be just a dad because that's be the best parent. of all the jobs.
2: Right. And With a show like yours, do you get to rehearse it or no?
0: So here's the thing. We don't anymore. We used to before the pandemic because we used to tape our show later. But then during the pandemic, we moved all our deadlines up out of necessity because, you know, when everybody was working at home, we had to feed all this giant digital files back into the network. And so we got really good at doing the show a little bit earlier. And also during the pandemic, obviously, there was no way to rehearse anything because there was no audience to rehearse in front of. And now we're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants, and it, we really enjoy it. We, I think we work a lot harder on the writing, knowing that we don't have the benefit of a rehearsal. And for me, as a performer, it's more exciting to be doing it for the first time at the actual taping. So that's one of the changes of the pandemic that we think has made the show a little bit more exciting.
2: Yeah, well, it's a great show to watch. I got a big kick out of reading the book. Don't forget, Seth Myers, I'm not scared. You're scared with wonderful illustrations. Congratulations. I look forward to talking to you again.
0: I'm really hoping the next time's in person. Will you invite me to one of your in-person tapings?
2: I will, without question. Okay, good. I look forward to it. Say hello to everyone, and we'll talk again. All right, thank you, Joan Thank you, Seth. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. So there's lots more to come. Stay tuned. He's your numero uno. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. One of my favorite people. Unbelievable. And not only has he written his memoir, I Was Better Last Night, Harvey Firestein. That's how his mother taught him to pronounce it. I could get them mixed up. His father called it Stein, I think. But Harvey, so many Tonys, who would have believed it? Tort Song Trilogy, he wrote Lacage, Kinky Boots. Oh, Harvey, I never what? even told you that my what? cousin Jack, Jackie, was the lyricist on Newsies.
1: Well, of course, I spoke to him just yesterday. Yeah, Jack no. Feldman. Cousin Jackie. I speak to Jackie. him all the time. Cousin I Jackie.
2: I love cousin Jackie. In
1: fact, they did a they did a tenth year anniversary concert on Monday at Feinstein's in the city, and Jack went to it. Oh, I, I
2: should could, have gone to that.
1: Oh uh, well, I, I I'll yell at him and tell him to invite you next time.
2: Of course, invite the family. Invite speaking, the family.
1: Yeah, all the, kids, of all the kids got together.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, when you do a book like you did, which is no holds barred, and it really starts early on, it's exhausting, it's exhilarating, and for some people, it's so cathartic, they never have to see a shrink again.
1: <laughs>
2: what happened to you, dear Harvey?
1: Well, I did, a, I did an event yesterday at the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, and um, it, what, what was so wonderful was a lot of my school chums showed up. There was someone I haven't seen since his bar mitzvah. Uh, there was a couple of people i went to high school with there were a couple of people i went to college with and they're all coming and they're and they're talking about exactly that um how cathartic it, it was for them to read the book and relive those those days in New york
2: but your days even starting as a kid because you were certainly not you know the big sports jock you were a kid who Did not conform from the start. Got into community theater. I mean, it just doesn't happen like that. Meets Andy Warhol. Is involved in the theater of the ridiculous. Right. Mama, you know a whole
1: world. You know my whole my philosophy um, that has been developed over these many centuries of my being alive. My philosophy seems to be that. Life is as interesting as the number of times you're brave enough to say yes. (laughs) You know, all day long we're doing, we're living our lives, you know, reading a newspaper or having coffee or whatever, and somebody will call up and say, hey, you want to go to the movies or you want to go see this or you want to go meet a friend of mine. And 99% of the time we say no because we've got our plan, you know, in place and we're kind of lazy and change is a hard thing for all of us to do. But the truth is, life does not get more exciting if you say no. It's only if you go out of your comfort zone, even in tiny ways, um, and say yes. I was in high school. I had no desire to be an actor. had no desire to be a writer. Um, somebody's mother was starting a community theater. She said, would you like to get some kids together to make posters down in the basement of a church? We went down there to do that, and my entire life changed. And I have lots of examples like that through my life. It's it's, part of it's coincidence. Part of it is just being in the right place at the right time. But most of it is about seizing opportunity. And saying yes. And like I said, I'm not as brave as I used to be about saying yes, but I still try to.
2: How many more yeses? If you said more, you wouldn't even have time (laughs) to go to sleep.
1: Well, it's true at the moment. I've got Funny Girl in previews on Broadway. And we've got... Kinky Boots casting for the Hollywood Bowl Mm. and and I'm on the tour uh, with the book at the moment and then there are people developing a television show for me at the moment which I never believe that stuff will ever happen I've had so many TV shows that never happened I know that this one will now well, who knows? But it, but it doesn't even matter. The, 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 the point is to live that adventure. The, the point isn't that something has to happen the way you think it's going to happen. The point is to live the adventure, learn what you can from it. You know, I, something else I always say is I'm not afraid of failure. I, I can survive failure What I can't survive is not taking the chance what I can't survive is is the maybe I should have you know what I mean that regretful feeling is what is what never goes away and always stays negative in your life but failure failure over time becomes kind of funny you know I think
2: well, I, you learn to step over it too
1: well you, you, know, you have I, to
2: you, But you, you, but you did And even, I mean, Harvey spares nothing in this memoir, which I literally couldn't put down. I was better last night. But part of it, I thought, as I'm reading, even though for your parents, it was really a tough journey. You know, their eccentric son who wanted to wear his mother's clothes and the whole thing. But they, in their own ways... They accepted you and loved you so much. That exactly, that and was a gift where you could well, survive a lot of stuff that kids couldn't.
1: My my father, um, my father's mother died in childbirth. He lived in uh, Ellenville, New York, you know, in the Catskills,
2: Upstate, right.
1: and so his father was the town barber and they put him in an orphanage as a baby and he was raised in an orphanage until he was 13 which of course is the is the Jewish age of manhood and at 13 they gave him the keys to a truck and he became the delivery guy for the <laughs> for the bakery for the local bakery um and he was an adult so he always had a want for family and a great respect for family since he didn't have the family he wanted. And so we were raised, my brother and I were raised that, that in the house we could get yelled at, but outside in the world, the, the family would always stick together and the family would always take care of one another, and uh, and so that was how we were raised and 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 why we had that sort of. No matter how nuts my life looked, the rules were set that they were going to back me up, and they did, and they, did. And they were there,
2: yeah. And your mom. The scene in the book when everyone's sitting around a pool and and there you are like a mermaid in the pool, you know, (laughs) one of your fantasies and your mother sort of everyone's watching, not knowing how to deal with it, says, look at him. He swims like a fish and it got her by and it got you by, too. And you had a brother who was a traditional kid, but was always there for you.
1: Well, the two of us, you know, it's funny, as as kids, you, you, uh, you know, in a Jewish family, um, we were we were nicknamed when we were babies almost. Uh, my brother was going to be the doctor and I was going to be the lawyer. He was going to be the doctor because he was good at science in school, and I was going to be the lawyer because I never shut up. And, um, mm-hmm. and as we grew up, we sort of grew up in that mold. Well, my brother stuck to that path until he found himself pre-med in college when he suddenly woke up and said, what am I doing? I don't want to be a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> so he so he ended up uh, getting a rock and roll band together and and uh, you know, going through his path, um, which eventually led to him becoming a lawyer. And I um was never going to be a lawyer. I, um, I, I just followed my path to be an artist and uh, and that's the way it turned out.
2: Right. And you found a community early on yes. enough to give you support to get through. A lot of the terrible times. When I read the book, and I have so many friends who died during that hideous period of AIDS, and it was devastating, but right. you were literally in the midst of it. And I don't know how you got through that, after, even after reading everything.
1: Well, the thing is that the the AIDS period, I think we just battled through and we battled through and we battled through. And then when it was sort of, over which of course it really isn't over the people are on drugs now but there's no cure there are there are drugs you know to keep right, you well it. but there's there's still no cure but once we got through the the Part where we were losing people on a daily basis, um I think I went into a bad depression. Yeah. I think I just finally collapsed into a bad depression. I began drinking, and that led to a, a kind of dark period in my life. but um, from the darkness again comes light and um you know, thankfully with that with the help of friends and and community um here I am renewed.
2: Right, and that wasn't easy. All that Southern Comfort.
1: All well, that which, Southern Comfort. Oh, that, <laughs> right,
2: that sweet drink. Which,
1: well, because I know, was... I really hated alcohol, Joan. I did. You know, I didn't like alcohol. I just wanted that numb feeling, and so Southern Comfort was very sweet. I drank a hundred proof Southern Comfort. Mm. At the worst of my drinking, I was, I was downing half a gallon a day. Oh which is absolutely absurd, and it nearly killed me. I mean, it, it nearly killed me. But uh, thankfully, here I am.
2: But uh, Right, thankfully for you and thankfully for all of us. But your journey, even with when Torch Song Trilogy became such a big hit, and I know people talk about it, but I love reading about it, when you could afford to buy rubber bands because you were living on nothing, nothing. Right. And you would pick up rubber bands to hold all your pages together. You'd pick them up off the street.
1: I know. That was, that's, it actually was a moment in my life when I realized I was no longer um, completely poor. When I went into a little bodega and bought an, a plastic bag of rubber bands. And I said, if you have money to buy rubber bands, you must be doing okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing, right? And Harvey, so much fun. I saw Matthew Broderick the other day on Broadway, and I kept thinking, having finished your book at that point, of this kid who wandered into your casting, I think. Right. What's was that torch song.
1: Yes, and he was. There a, was he,
2: Matthew he, with a running nose like a his, kid.
1: Right. Well, it was his first job. He was 18 years old. He came in with his bicycle. I had no idea who he was. I didn't know. I mean, I knew who his father was, but I didn't realize that they were, you know, they were related. It was just a kid auditioning. There was no, you know, he was not Matthew Broderick, obviously. He was just a kid auditioning. But he came in. He had so much personality. He, had, he was so much himself. Um, and he, and he, uh, he read with Estelle Getty. Uh, they auditioned. Whom
2: you uh, discovered,
1: really. Right, in, in Bayside, Queens. And uh, and the two of them read together, and Estelle turned to him and said, You know, you're not going to be a kid forever. <laughs> <laughs> she was She was so tough on him. But he was adorable, and we cast him as my son. And then years later, of course, when we made the movie, he was too old to play my son, so he played my boyfriend. <laughs> That's so funny. I know.
2: I'm sure he got a big kick out of reading that
1: too. Well, I don't know. I don't even know if he's read the book yet. I sent. I sent him the book. I sent Sarah Jessica Parker the book as well, um, because I know how lazy he can be. So I figured <laughs> maybe Sarah will make him read the book, or she'll read well, him the good parts.
2: Exactly. But I he can I, even be def- lazy.
1: Yeah, I haven't gotten down to see them yet, but I'm do. But the two of us are doing. Um, Sarah. One of Sarah's best friends is Andy Cohen. He has that show, Watch What Happens on Of course. TV. And uh, and Matthew and I are doing that show together in a couple of weeks. So I'll oh, be able to question him.
2: Such a good time.
1: Yeah, we always you know. do whenever we but get together.
2: When the book was all finished, and you've been going on tour, and I'm sure it gets a little exhausting, you know, to repeat the same stuff over and over again. But do you feel like now you really know who you are? I always thought you knew who you were from the beginning, even with all the problems.
1: I think uh, uh, it's very funny what, what what writing a memoir does for you. Um, in a funny way, it gets all those things, all the little shadows out of the dark corners. Cause you put them down on paper, so they're not scary anymore. There's nothing. There's nothing lurking in a dark corner. Nobody's gonna discover something about you because you've already said it, um, and and so it loses its power to be scary to you anymore. But it also, I do It was a lovely feeling to to finish the book. But the funny part is, when you're done writing the book. You can't turn off that faucet. The memories keep coming. It's like, oh, and now I should write this story, and I should tell this story, and I should tell this story. Because even at 400 pages, I'm going to be 70 years old in a couple of weeks. I got a lot of stories. uh, Well, that's book number two. Well, I figured give myself a year or two off, and then, yeah, maybe so I'll, that... and then maybe I'll hit the computer again. I have a bunch of other things I want to write in the meantime, but I'm I'm so proud of this book. I'm proud that, that I got it done, uh, first of all. The, I'm honey, proud that a, yeah, and, a deal. And Knopf, and to have Knopf. Be my publisher is outstanding, and uh, they're, they're, I have a wonderful editor there, uh, Peter Gathers, who is just absolutely terrific. And then to have it come out and be a New York Times bestseller—that was like wow. That was it. Just blew me away.
2: No, and of all the things you've done, and you know, you portrayed that when Torch Song, you know, even the Rubber Bands, when suddenly. It was okay. It was official. You were really on top of your game. But to see this book with everything is really unbelievable. You know, I was thinking maybe the next one, you could do a play with you. You did it, but now a new version of you.
1: Right. Well, um, I, I actually have already been offered a Broadway theater um, Jordan Roth, the wonderful, uh, head Jordan. of Jude right. yeah, he had theaters. He called me up and said, I'm so crazy about your book. Won't you consider doing a, um a show based on the book, you know, telling stories in the book, maybe adding in a couple of songs from the different shows. Yeah, and I right. said, and I said, I definitely will think about it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start thinking about it over the summer once I finish the book tour. But, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful that, that those stories have so touched people. But I do want to do it right. You want to you get something like that right.
2: No, but you, you, the book even has it right and you're going to get it more right because you're a storyteller and you're funny. There's so much humor in the book too. You know, I remember, you won't remember this Harvey. It goes back a zillion years. I was, Doing the show in Connecticut, not far from where you. I live. just
1: drove past that building, Joan. <laughs> you, I you, just, I just had to go to the to the uh, showroom, the lighting showroom, to try and pick out an outdoor light fixture. I and I knew I had to come home and and talk to you. And as I'm driving, I drove past that building where you did the live broadcast.
2: Remember from that
1: barn? And then, of course I do.
2: But then the funny thing was when I said, Harvey, where do you live? And you said, you'll know, because I had to put up an American flag. I said, why? <laughs> you said, you're in this little town. They never saw a Jew before. So I knew <laughs> if I put up an American flag, they'd think I was one of them.
1: But Well, that's, a, that's a lot now. of years ago. I've been here. I've been in this town now. Oh my gosh! Um, I moved in in '84, so what is that? Oh,
2: that's uh, that's, 90,
1: that's oh 38 years. We, yeah, right. I've been here a long time. So I think they figured out I live here now.
2: That's right, with I, or I'm without the of, flag. I've right? lived here
1: more longer than most of the of my neighbors. So, I so know. yeah, but with it's, or it's,
2: without what's going yes. on and everything exciting and the book to read about what downtown New York was like from someone who really lived it, to go with you to Ted Hook's backstage. And in those days he was a personal assistant to stars that we'd read about in movie magazines, Joan Blondell to Lula Bankhead. All the greats. I mean, those are yeah. adventures no one can have except for
1: you. I, in fact, I have. Um, Ted got it for me uh, before he passed. Um, the A Grandma Moses that Cholula Bank had bought from Grandma Moses. Mm. She was one of the people who discovered Grandma Moses. And I have one of the the Grandma Moses paintings that Cholula Bank had bought directly from oh, her.
2: How great!
1: Which always oh, well, reminds
2: Ted. It's it's a wonderful ride, and I love that it's going stronger, bigger, and better than ever.
1: But you know what? But I got to tell you one thing about the book title. I was better last night. I oh, originally thought of that as the best thing you could put on a gravestone. <laughs> I was better <laughs> last night. A true word never spoken. <laughs>
2: oh my gosh, that was funny, but. Hey, you're here. You're not in a rush to go anywhere. you got a whole lot nowhere, of clears. You're going nowhere, honey.
1: You and, and, you and I are riding this pony for a while longer. Why not? Why not? You know, not? I
2: always say when people say, do you ever get depressed because of the pandemic? I say, you know what? I don't want to miss a meal. So right. we're hanging on.
1: All right, well, give my love to Johnny for me and thank Lisa and everybody. You. And it was a pleasure, as always, to talk to you.
2: We'll see you soon. All the best. Bye, Harvey. Joe, my love. But- to more. I'm Joan Hamburg. That was Harvey Forrestine. It was better. I was better last night. And we're going to come up to much more right here on WABC. Stay tuned.
1: The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan.
2: Maybe because I think it was the New York Post that ran a story on very expensive designer resale handbags that people started asking us about it. Well, let me tell you, you can buy and sell authentic luxury items, Including high end designer handbags from a couple of sources Fashion File, F A S H I O N P H I L E, and the real R E A L, real R E A L. It's become an investment, like real estate for some people, and a must have fashion accessory. And these gently used designer vintage bags are the rage, and you can find them in the colors and the styles that you can't find new. I was shocked at how expensive they are. Hermes Birkin bags are very difficult to buy new. And making them is very desirable. Remember Sex in the City years ago, 2002, where Samantha longs for a Birkin bag. And then at a high-end New York boutique, she sold the bag is... $4,000, and there's a five-year wait for this bag. The sales rep said, it's not a bag, it's a Birkin. And being Samantha who has to get what she wants, she tells the boutique the bag isn't for her. It's for her celebrity client, Lucy Lou. When Lucy finds out in the show what Samantha has done, she fires her and keeps the bag for herself. So who can believe $4,000 was what a leather Birkin cost in two thousand two. And now, twenty years later, the new price of the Birkin is over hold on, twelve thousand dollars. And that was an article in InStyle magazine. And resale ones start at around seven. Some of them fall in the twelve thousand range on websites like Fashion File or the real rail. You should take a look at these resources. I mean, truthfully, guys, I could never spend that ever on a bag, but people do, and they are investments. file you can go on to fashionfile.com started in 1999, and it's the granddaddy of luxury resale websites. They're one of the best known They specialize in designer handbags and accessories. Very picky. And they had, when we checked, about 400 and something Hermes Birkin bags for sale. The starting price, $7,250. The most expensive on their site, $220,000 for a crocodile Himalaya Birkin. What can I tell you? God bless. The Real Real, go on to T H E R E A L R E A L dot com, was founded in 2011, very popular. And they accept more designer labels than Fashion File. They buy and sell home goods and Five Art. And it's one of the largest online markets for authenticated resale luxury goods. And they have a lot of Birkin bags on sale. They won't tell you what they have, but they have plenty. Their lowest price was $7,020 for Hermes shoulder Birkin in orange. Their highest price, I find it shocking, was $175 for an Hermes 2013 crocodile Birkin. In good condition, if you can afford it. Good luck. I wish you the best. But take a look at these sites; they'll keep you amused anyway. Fashionfile f a s h i o n p h i l e dot com, and the real real, the real real dot com. Sorry, guys. I'm looking at the clock. It's three o'clock, so we have to say goodbye. But don't forget, we do this every Sunday, starting at two o'clock and bring you all the information that you can use. Enjoy the rest of Sunday. I'm Joan Hamburg.